0: God, we just thank you that you love us so much. How great is your love, God. Um, God, won't you just speak through me tonight um, through your book of Zechariah. Um, We just pray that it would be impactful and, um, yeah, that our hearts would be changed by your word. In your name, amen. All right. Guys, I talk for a living and I am nervous as heck. I don't know why. But anyways, I am preaching from the book of Zechariah. Uh, this is the second last book of our one series, and um, yeah, it's, uh, it's quite an interesting book. The last couple of them have been super short. Like last week, Haggai was like two chapters, and Ryan was super happy about preaching from a book with three chapters, and then there's one last one that's like 14 chapters, and that one landed on my shoulder, so that's like right. It's not too bad, but it's definitely not two chapters, so anyways. Um, yeah, I'd actually like to just start by reading, just right off the bat, so. Turn your Bibles to the book of Zechariah, please. I'm just going to read the first five verses of the book. So Zechariah chapter one, verses one to five. Uh, Generally, I'm going to be reading from the New Living, uh, unless I say otherwise, it's just a little bit more comfortable. So once you guys find that, I will start reading. So Zechariah chapter one says, in November of the second year of King Darius's reign, the Lord gave this message to the prophet Zechariah. Verse 2 says, I, the Lord, was very angry with your ancestors. Therefore, say to the people, this is what the Lord of heaven's armies says. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of heaven's armies. Don't be like your ancestors who wouldn't listen or pay attention. When the earlier prophets said to them, this is what the Lord of heaven's armies says. Turn from your evil ways and stop all your evil practices. Verse 5, where are your ancestors now? They and the prophets are long dead. Welcome to Zechariah. (laughs) It's a good time. Um, So Zechariah's name actually means God remembers. God remembers. Um, And this whole sermon series has actually kind of been about remembering, um, learning from the past, learning the context of some of our favorite kind of Old Testament stories um, so that we can remember those things as we kind of go through life and apply them. And this book starts right off the bat with God bringing up the past to these people. He's saying, hey, remember this? All those people, they died. So, you know, think about that as we kind of move forwards. Um, And this book actually, interestingly, has tons of prophecies and predictions about the future. So the question is kind of, why does a guy whose name means God remembers spend so much time talking about the future? Because usually remembering is in the past, you know? Um, But the past obviously points to the future. That's kind of the whole point. And learning from the past, helps us to have hope for the future. Uh, if you look back and you can see that God was faithful, you can look forward to the future knowing that he is going to be faithful. So if this sermon had a title, it would be Remembering History Matters. Last time I had a catchphrase when I preached, I said, it's all about... Present. And it was effective. So we're gonna try and do that again. Remembering History Matters. I'm gonna say that a bunch of times. Um, obviously, the book talks about the past, present, and the future. Uh, don't forget your past. You know, learn from it. Don't lose focus while you're in the present and don't lose hope for the future. And that obviously applies to us so well today, so. Um, my sermon has four subsections, if you will. Um, the intro, which I'm in the middle of now. Uh, the contents of the actual book. We'll talk about what Zechariah actually talks about. There's a whole section after that I'm gonna talk about how it points to Jesus. Cause oh my goodness, there is so much prophecy about Jesus in this book. It needs an entire section. And then finally I'll end off with an application for us. One last thing in the intro here is just to note Zechariah's name, he specifically uses for God in this book, is Yahweh Sabaoth. Sounds like Sabbath, but it's different. It means the Lord of hosts or the Lord of heaven's armies. Um, Basically, the idea is that God is this divine king, and he is working his divine will. He's commanding a great army to command his will. Obviously, a a spiritual army of, of angels and stuff. We'll come back to that, but just wanted to introduce that. Okay, so context of the book. Raise your hand if you have been here for every single sermon of the One Series. That's correct. So I'm just going to do a really quick recap. Um, David was the king of Israel and his son took over Solomon and Solomon built an epic temple, okay? Then after Solomon died, the whole kingdom split in half. You had this northern kingdom called Israel and then the southern kingdom called Judah, which is where Jerusalem was, which is where that epic temple was, okay? Eventually the sins of the people were too great. You've probably heard this a number of times over the last couple of weeks. God allows the Assyrians to conquer the northern kingdom. 134 years later, so there's a big gap, uh, the Babylonians capture the southern kingdom. They're in exile for about 70-ish years. And in that capture, by the way, that epic temple is wrecked. It's totally destroyed. Okay, So um, as we've heard in the last couple of books, in the last couple of weeks, they are finally allowed to come back. This king named Cyrus, who's actually a great dude, Um, allowed the Jews to go back to rebuild Jerusalem. He did this for other nations as well. This Cyrus dude that was king of Persia was like, you can go back and you can go back. Everybody, you can go back. Um, And we heard in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, those were kind of the narrative books way back, like before the summer of like the people kind of coming back. But during that time, you had these two prophets, Haggai, who we heard about last week, and this guy named Zechariah. And Haggai was mostly concerned with getting the people back to building the temple, and his words were much more practical. They were like, listen, stop focusing on your own stuff, focus on building the temple. Um, Zechariah was a little bit of a different dude. Uh, He was a little bit more out there with some of his visions and some of his writings. So so that's the context of the book. So we're in the same place that we were last week with Haggai. It's basically like Haggai puts the mic down, and then Zechariah's like, tap me in, and he just takes over right there. Okay, so the, the third thing in this intro is the state of the people. So Zechariah 4.10 calls it the day of small things. So it made me think of when we were on Zoom for small group in the pandemic, we would always log on and be like, hey, how was your week? Anything interesting happen? We're like, no, I mean, we just sat here. We didn't do anything, you know? And that was kind of where the people were. They were just sort of stuck. They had been divided, distracted, discouraged. Um, They'd been back in the land for like, give or take 20 years. They had started rebuilding the temple and it came to a stop and they just kind of heard from Haggai like, hey, this needs to get going. Um, they were in this awkward in-between stage because they weren't under Babylon anymore. They got to come back home, but they still weren't their own country. They're still under this kind of Persian thing. Um, And so they're just in this in-between stage. And so part of Zechariah's message is that God actually is still in control, even though it feels like everything kind of is ruined and you're like, we're back, but it's not really the same anymore. And it's like, it doesn't matter. God is still in control of what's happening, which is why he puts a big emphasis on that whole Lord of Heaven's armies title specifically. Okay. Fourth part of the intro, and this is the last part of the intro, I want to introduce our main characters. So, I'm going to read from the book of Ezra, chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. Uh, I'll let you turn there really quick, but the book of Ezra, a number of books back, chapter 5, 1 and 2, it says this At the time, the prophets Haggai and Zechariah um, prophesied to the Jews in Judah and Jerusalem, and they prophesied in the name of God of Israel who was over them. Verse 2 Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, son of Jehozadak responded by starting again to rebuild the temple of God in Jerusalem. The prophets of God were with them and helped them. So there's three pairs of dudes that we need to kind of know about in this context. There's Ezra and Nehemiah, which again, those were the guys that kind of wrote the historical narrative. Ezra was more focused on rebuilding the temple. Nehemiah was about the walls. Fun fact, Ezra wrote the book of Chronicles to remind the people of their big epic history. Why? because remembering history matters. This was important to get these people recharged. It's like, look at your history so that you can look forward to the future. So that's Ezra and Nehemiah. Then you have Zechariah, the guy I'm preaching from his book, and Haggai, who we heard about last week. They also have their own books of the Bible. They were prophets. Um, Again, Haggai was focused on getting the temple built. Zechariah was born during the Babylonian exile. He was of the priestly uh, descent. Um, Other fun fact, Zechariah is a super common name in the Bible. So John the Baptist's dad is named Zechariah. It's not this guy. There was a king of the northern kingdom named Zechariah. Not this guy. It's like John. There's just like 50 of them. It's just a thing. But then there's these other two really important characters. And I actually would love to invite my two special guests to come up. And they are going to represent the two main characters of this book. So I'm going to have my son David represent this dude named Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel. Very good. And then uh, Travis here is going to be Jeshua or Joshua, depending on which translation you are. I'm fine with either. doesn't really matter. It's the same name. Um, (laughs) So let me introduce our two main characters of the book of Zechariah. We actually heard about these guys last week in the book of Haggai, but these are like the main characters of this book. So I just wanted to introduce them. Okay. So Joshua, son of the pastor, we made him the high priest uh high priest this is the guy not the guy that led the people around the battle of jericho that's like thousands of years before this is just a guy his name is joshua he's a high priest okay this guy is Zerubbabel. It's from the line of david which is why i chose him for this role um and uh he is the would have been king so again they're not their own nation so he doesn't get to be king he gets to be governor um but if they were their own nation this would be the next guy in line he was from the line of david His name was Arubabel, and he would have been the king. So they made him the governor. Here's your fun word of the day, new word, okay? A monarch while in exile is called an exilarch. There you go, useless information of the day. Okay, he was also born in Babylonian exile, just like Zechariah, and that's actually what his name means. Zerub, seed of Babel, Babylon, seed of Babylon, dude, okay? So we will come back to that, main characters. Y'all may take a seat. Just keep your signs with you, and I'll call you up multiple times. Okay. So that's our intro. Oh, I didn't start a timer. I have no idea what time it is. Okay, cool. We'll keep going. Uh, there are three sections of this book. Okay. There's three sections of the book. So the first six chapters, um, is the nine dreams or visions. So they're visions, but he had them at nighttime. So I would call those dreams. Um, then in the middle of the book, there's this conversation about fasting, which arguably is super important to this book. And then at the end, there's two more oracles or visions that are very future-based, okay? So let's start in part one, uh, talk about the nine dreams. Obviously, I don't have time to go through all of them and all of the details of them. Thing that you should know, of course, is their dreams. So they're wild and crazy. And um, yeah, the um, Bible project video does a good job of just presenting how ridiculous they are. But I just wanted to couple, highlight a couple of things. So. Um, It takes place, uh, he's hearing these dreams in the second year after King Darius. So that's the next guy after King Cyrus that let them come back, it's it's another dude. Um, And after that intro we read earlier, that's like, don't be like your ancestors, the dreams start. um, And they're about all three tenses, past, present, and future, they're just sort of all over the place. They're also hilariously explained at every step, okay? So every vision goes like this, there's an angel beside Zechariah, and the angel's like, what do you see? He's like, oh, I see this thing. The angel's like, What do you think it means? He's like, I don't know. What does it mean? Angel's like, You don't know what it means? He's like, I don't know what it means. They're like, It means this. He's like, Oh. And then he's like, What do you see? He's like, I see this. What does it mean? You don't know what it means? Well, no, I don't know what it means. What does it mean? Well, it means this. And every single vision is fully explained, which is wonderful because we don't have to guess what it means. Fully explained. It's obviously super weird stuff, but helpfully explained. I'm just going to highlight a couple of them. So the third vision is about a man measuring Jerusalem. He's got this thing and he's measuring to see how big Jerusalem is. And zechariah 2 verse 4 says jerusalem will someday be so full of people there won't be room enough for everyone many will live outside the city walls wait a second we live outside the city walls fun fact okay fifth vision is a really big one which i will come back to again later but it's basically a dream about a golden lampstand or like a menorah thing and in the middle of that vision is a very famous verse arguably the most famous verse out of zechariah Actually, I wanted to ask this question really quick. If I had like 20 bucks and I said, could you quote any verse from the book of Zechariah, raise your hand if you think you could come up with one. Most people can't, just Ryan. Okay, (laughs) that's fair because this is the thing. Like we don't really talk about Zechariah, but this dude is so, anyways, it's amazing. Okay, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit. Raise your hand if you've heard that verse before. Classic verse, but we never think about this Zechariah dude, whoever the heck he is. But anyways, we'll come back to that. Ninth vision um, is a little bit different from the first eight. It's in a more of a public setting. So it's still a vision that he's having, but in the vision, he's imagining other people see this thing. Um, And uh, I need my two volunteers up for this one really quick. So in the instructions, God says to Zechariah, gather all the gold from the people and make a crown. Okay, get all the jewels and stuff like that, and make a crown, and put it on the head of whose head do you think it should go on? The king. Well, actually, he says, put it on the head of the high priest. And he's kind of like, that's weird. Why are we putting it on this dude's head? This is the would-be king, right? But he says, put the crown on the head of this guy. Okay, thank you. You guys can sit down. (laughs) Confusing point, but the conversation. Then we get into the fasting conversation in the middle of the book. And this is um, an important break from the visions. Snap back to reality. Oh, there goes gravity. It's an important wake-up call about uh, religion, arguably. So here's the interaction, okay? The people come to Zechariah, and, uh, and they're like, listen, man, we've been fasting for about 70 years because the temple was destroyed. We had just been fasting because we're mourning that, right? It makes sense, it was an epic temple. Um, now we're back, we're rebuilding the new temple, should we keep fasting, right? Seems like a valid question on the surface. God answers in a couple of ways. The first thing he says is, yeah, you were never really fasting for me in the first place. You were kind of doing it for yourselves. Seems like there's like a little bit of self-righteousness going on there. We're like, oh, the temple. He's like, if you would just listened to me in the first place, the temple wouldn't have been destroyed. You know, kind of calls him out on that. His second answer is stop oppressing the poor. You're like, what? Heck, does that have to do with fasting for the temple? Zechariah chapter 7, verses 9 and 10 says, This is what the Lord of heaven's army says judge fairly and show mercy and kindness to one another. Do not oppress the widows, the orphans, the foreigners, and the poor. Do not scheme against each other. Let me translate that to modern times. Should we be doing church this way or that way? Should I like practice my religion like this or should I do it like that? And God's like, hey, stop oppressing the poor. It's pretty, pretty specific. We like to pretend that there is a difference between ignoring the poor and oppressing the poor. And I would challenge that there might not be. So let me ask a pointed question. And I'm, uh, I'm asking myself the same question. I'm not standing on any sort of high ground here. If Jesus was a homeless person in your town, if Jesus came back, not for like the second coming, but like a one and a half coming, like just like a secret appearance, and he showed up as a homeless person in your town, would you even notice him? I can tell you right now, I wouldn't. I either wouldn't see him because I'm not around people that are homeless, or if I saw a homeless person, I'd be like, oh my gosh, this is awkward, and I wouldn't look. And this series has just shown me that God is such a social justice warrior. He hates injustice. He is so angered by wealthy people oppressing the poor. Every time the people in the Old Testament were sinning, it was like there was two things, idol worship and injustice. That was all God ever cared about, and that's all he's ever talking to them about. Usually it's both things, actually. They're often tied together. So I would love to read a very pointed part of scripture from Matthew 25. I don't know if we have it on the screen or not, but I'm just going to start reading. Matthew 25 from verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and the angels are with him, he'll sit on his glorious throne. The nations will be gathered in his presence, and he'll separate people like sheep from goats. He'll place the sheep at his right hand, goats at his left. And the king will say to those at the right, Come, you who are blessed by my father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you fed me. I was thirsty. You gave me a drink. I was a stranger and you invited me into your home. I was naked. You gave me clothing. I was sick. You cared for me. I was in prison and you visited me. And these people will reply, when did we ever do that? Right? When were you, we never saw you when you were hungry or thirsty. And the King will say, I tell you the truth. When you did it for the least of these, you were doing it for me. And then he'll turn to the other people and basically say the opposite, you know, away with you. Um, I was hungry and you didn't feed me. And they're gonna say, when do we even see you hungry? And he said, I tell you the truth, when you refused to help the least of these, you were refusing to help me. The Bible can't be any more clear about the importance of justice and social justice. It's not a topic that we can ignore. And I am so happy that for Christmas this year, we are doing this whole meet the need campaign. Literally the verse that was on the slide that we were like, I think there's a verse for it. That's the verse for it. Is we are like, when I was hungry, you fed me. That's what we need to do. CityGates.ca slash meet the need, we we gotta jump on this guys. It can't be an optional thing, okay? Okay, and move on from that slightly. So the second chapter in this middle section about fasting, because remember God was like, eh, you weren't really doing it for me in the first place. Stop oppressing the poor. The third answer is, I freaking love you. That's his, that's his third answer. Seriously. The first he's like, the future is gonna be so much better, you're gonna have peace, you're gonna be a blessing to other people, which is you know Abraham's promise, the people are gonna be a blessing. Uh, Zechariah 8, 6 says, this is what the Lord of heaven's army says. Again, with that name, all this may seem impossible to you now because you're a small remnant of God's people, but is it impossible for me? Think about their situation. They've gone from one oppressor to another. That's like slightly nicer, but they're still under the control of another nation. God's like, it's going to get so much better. And they're like, are you sure? You know, God's like, is it impossible for me? Which is a rhetorical question because obviously nothing is impossible for God okay so that's that middle section and then the final section is these two big oracles about the future um it's written way later like 35 years later so zechariah is much older and he writes these down they are insanely wild like the first section is weird this section is crazy um there's an interesting theme here that happens when there's a lot of promise of the messiah so the two oracles is basically a lot about jesus's first coming and a lot about jesus's second coming there's more in there but that's generally what's going on And there is such an ambiguity between God returning and this Messiah showing up, which to us as Christians, we're like, right, because Jesus is God, right? We make that connection now, but remember this is like 500 years pre-Jesus. So pointing to the Trinity, Jesus is both fully man and fully God. The first oracle starts by saying, God's gonna eliminate the threat from the enemies. He lists specific nations, which interestingly were never world powers. So he doesn't list Persia, he lists all these other little countries around. And he actually deals with these nations in two ways, which is really interesting. Destruction, of course, but also redemption and transformation of outsiders and bringing them into this kingdom. You see that all throughout this book of Zechariah. We have to remember that it's like, we're like, okay, because we're not Jews, we're brought into the kingdom by Jesus. As Christians, we often think, oh yeah, that's no big deal. But to them, that was like, they couldn't possibly fathom people on the outside wanting to come into their their kingdom and worship their God. So Zechariah 9.7 says, says, then the surviving Philistines will worship our God and become like a clan in Judah. The Philistines of Ekron will join my people as the ancient Jebusites once did. this section also has a ton of prophecies about the coming Messiah, as I mentioned. We'll get into that in the next section. Uh, The last section of chapter nine amazingly predicts the Greek empire like 200 years earlier, like before Alexander the Great. It's crazy. There's a whole side thing. I'm not going to go into that, but um, yeah, other kingdoms ended up still ruling over the Jews, obviously, but their city was never destroyed, which God said, I will guard my temple, uh, Zechariah nine, eight. So, um, and then in Zechariah 11, it actually predicts the fall of Jerusalem after they reject their shepherd wild. Like for those that don't know, after Jesus showed up, like 70 years later, their temple was destroyed. And you're like, ah, how did this guy know that? Like 50 years in advance. It's crazy. The second oracle is really wild. It's like Armageddon and stuff like that. Sorry, I'm going 100 miles an hour. I've got a lot to say, okay? I'm just going really quick. (laughs) Um, Some of what he has to say in this last oracle is positive. So Zechariah 14.8 says, On that day, living waters will flow out from Jerusalem. Sounds lovely. Um, Some of it is not so positive. So Zechariah 14.12 says, And the Lord will send a plague on all the nations that fought against Jerusalem. They will become like walking corpses, their flesh rotting away. Their eyes will rot in their sockets and their tongues will rot in their mouths. Lovely, (laughs) just lovely, you know? Um, These are predictive future prophecies about Jesus' second coming. And I mean, spoiler alert, it's going to be messy. The end of the book is about dishes. (laughs) I I can't make this up. Uh, Zechariah 14, verses 20 and 21. And the cooking pots in the temple of the Lord will be as sacred as as the basins used beside the altar. In fact, every cooking pot in Jerusalem and Judah will be holy to the Lord of heaven's armies. In other words, in those days, there will be no religious fakeness. Everything will actually be for real, everything will actually be honoring Jesus um, and people will really worship him. Okay, section three. I can slow down, I'm sorry. Okay, pointing to Jesus. This book points to Jesus so much, 40 separate occasions pointing to uh, Jesus in this book. And yet Zechariah is not super popular. I find that wild. Um, It's not the most amount of prophecies about Jesus Jesus of any Old Testament book, but I think like per chapter, it's like the most, like it's most frequent kind of thing. There is just prophecies galore. Um, Quick point on the prophecies. I, I just feel like we so often will subconsciously dismiss the prophecies because it's something way in the past predicting something slightly less further in the past. So something 2,500 years ago is predicting something 2,000 years ago. And we're hearing about it and we're like, well, yeah, everyone knows that, you know? And it's like, but they didn't. They were before that, they didn't know that, you know? Um, I can't predict things. The weatherman can't predict things. Let's not dismiss somebody predicting a specific person 500 years before they showed up. It's wild. Okay, so there's seven obvious references I just wanna touch on. Um, They're just blatant um, Zechariah three, verse three talks about taking away our sin. So, uh, uh, Joshua, Joshua is standing in this vision and it says, verse three says, Joshua's clothing was filthy (laughs) as he stood there before the angel. And so the angel said, take off his filthy clothes and turning to Joshua, he said, see, I have taken away your sins. And now I'm giving you these fine new clothes. I don't have any clothes for you, bro. I'm sorry. Um, an obvious reference to Jesus taking away our sins. Uh, thank you. You can sit down. Uh, Zechariah 9.9 talks about riding on a donkey. So rejoice, people of Zion. Um, Look, your king is coming to you. He's righteous and victorious, humble, riding on a donkey. And we're all like, oh yeah, Jesus rode on a donkey. That's so cool. 500 years before he did it. This is a prediction, it's so specific. Um, Note that this was actually not unusual for a king to ride a donkey. I didn't know that. It was more just the type of king to be expected. So a king that's like, we're going to conquer all the nations. They would show up on horses and chariots. And the king that was like, I just want to be among the people. He would show up on donkey. So it was more setting the tone with the donkey. Um, Okay, Zechariah 9.11 says, because of the covenant I made with you sealed with blood, I will free your prisoners from death. Covenant, obviously, sealed with blood, free prisoners. Can't really get any more obvious than that. Uh, Zechariah ten four says, from Judah will come the cornerstone. Jesus literally referred to himself as the cornerstone. Um, this is a big one. Zechariah 11, verses 12 and 13, talk about 30 pieces of silver. So this is really cool. So um, remember I said the, the prediction about they're gonna re- reject their shepherd, okay? So Zechariah 11 says this, and I said to them, if you like, give me my wages, whatever I'm worth and only if you want to. So they counted out for my wages, 30 pieces of silver. And the Lord said to me, throw it to the potter, this magnificent sum at which they valued me. That's sarcasm, by the way, it's in the Bible. Okay. Um, So I took the 30 coins and I threw them to the potter in the temple of the Lord. Let me read from Matthew 27 verses three. When Judas saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver. That's what he betrayed Jesus for. He said, I've sinned by betraying innocent blood. They said, we can't deal with this. And he threw it down and left. So the chief priests are like, well, we can't keep this money. It's blood money. How do they have that self-awareness? Anyways, so they took counsel and they decided to do what? They bought a potter's field as a burial place for strangers. Now listen to this verse eight. Therefore, that field has been called the field of blood to this day, and it has fulfilled what has been spoken by the prophet Jeremiah saying, and they took the 30 pieces of silver, the price on him. It was literally Zechariah. Poor Zechariah literally gets misquoted in the Bible. as So apparently it was written on the same scroll as Jeremiah. But man, Zechariah, he's super popular, but yet super unpopular at the same time. Okay, two more obvious references, because I said seven. Zechariah 12.10, they will look on me, the one they have pierced. How many of you have heard like half of these? Like these, I've heard these a zillion times, never realized they were all coming out of the same book. Um, these happened in fulfillment of the scriptures that not one of his bones will be broken and they will look on the one they have pierced. That's from the book of John. Final of the seven obvious ones is Zechariah 13, 7, which is literally quoted by Jesus on the night of his betrayal. Strike down the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Again, I've heard that a hundred times and been like, man, Zechariah, you were the man. (laughs) You've got so much of these. Okay, so those are the obvious references, but that's not actually the big prophecy in this book. Okay. There's this one overarching theme, which is why I have these two dudes. So I need these two dudes to come back on one stage if you could, please. The important prophecy about this future Messiah is that he is going to combine multiple roles into one person, high priest and king. Okay. Um, And prophet actually is all part of that as well. But there was a number of priests that were also prophets. Uh, Zechariah was a priest that was also a prophet, a bunch of them as well. Um, but there was one dude in the scriptures that was multiple roles, and that was this guy named Melchizedek. Who you may have heard of before before. you had been around church. He was the king of Salem. He shows up in Genesis 14, um, and it says he was the king of Salem, but also a priest of the Most High God. Uh, Psalm 110 references this dude again, says you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. So this idea of this guy, who we know almost nothing about, but the main point of him was that he was both a king and a priest. Hence Zerubbabel and Joshua. So their roles are prophetic. And Zechariah in this book multiple times says, hey guys, your roles are prophetic. They're pointing forwards to a dude, um, which is mind boggling for the people at the time. You may be used to wearing multiple hats, right? When people are like, Brian, what do you do for a living? I'm like, I don't know, like 10 things. Like there's just a lot, it's not a one kind of a job, you know? Um, but being a king and a priest at the same time was a big no-no, okay? In, in Thank you, David. <laughs> in 2 Chronicles 26, there was a king that tried to be a priest. So the king goes into the temple to try and do the priestly duties, and he just instantly comes down with leprosy. You're like, okay, don't do that. Got it. Don't cross these roles. Um, and obviously, again, re- you know, obvious to Christians in hindsight, because remembering history matters. But it was important for these guys to see that this was a big thing. So Zechariah 3 verse 8 says, Listen to me, Joshua the high priest, and all you other priests, You are a symbol of things to come. Soon I will bring my servant, the branch. Okay, so there's some young people in this room. You guys ever seen the movie Trolls? Okay, we're not talking about that branch, okay? It's a different person named Branch. Uh, Reference throughout the Bible, Isaiah 11.1 says, they shall come forth as a shoot from the stump of Jesse, aka David from the stump of Jesse, um, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. So the stump of Jesse, of course, is the king of David, which is king of lineage. Uh, but Zechariah 4 coming back to that golden lantern story that I mentioned earlier so the story says that there's this golden lamp there's a, a seven wicks on it and all this stuff but it also talks about the fact that there's two olive trees beside it and of course wonderfully for us Zechariah is like hey what do the olive trees mean and the angel's like what you don't know what they mean he's like no I don't know what they mean he says well let me tell you and he says they represent my two anointed ones Joshua and Zerubbabel, and they are both flowing, these two olive trees are flowing, olive oil, oil flowing into a lantern, because that's how you run a lantern, and the oil represents the spirit. And remember, in the middle of that passage, talking about the two olive trees and this lantern, is this famous verse that says, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, the oil coming from these two dudes, okay? Fun fact, olive trees grow really slowly. Like, unlike the way that I'm talking right now, really slowly, okay? They take years before they reach fruitfulness, and that's kind of like God's plan, right, over centuries. These two dudes are like, you're pointing forward to someone 500 years later, like a long time, right? Remember Zechariah 6, the ninth vision that we mentioned earlier? Take a crown and put it on the high priest instead of Zerubbabel. It's because it's pointing to this idea of the two roles merging, right? Now, listen to what the actual scripture says. I just said it references the two. Let me tell you what it says. Take the silver and gold, make a crown, put it on the head of high priest Joshua, son of Jehozadak. Tell him, this is what the Lord Almighty says. Here is the man whose name is the branch, and he will branch out from his place, and he will build the temple of the Lord. And you're like, well, they, they, they are building the temple already, but this branch person is also going to build the temple. And it is he who will build the temple of the Lord, and he will be clothed with majesty and sit and rule on his throne. Again, we're talking about, this priest person is pointing to someone that's going to sit on the throne. He's wearing his crown. It's confusing to them. He will be a priest on his throne and there will be harmony between the two. These are the two roles. They're going to show up and it's going to be the same guy. And again, for us as Christians looking back we're like, oh yeah, of course, Jesus is king and priest. We get it. We get it. You know, at the time it was like mind boggling. Again, remembering that king that came down with leprosy. Thank you Jesus. me. Have a seat. One last thing on the pointing to Jesus is just this obvious hope for a Messiah coming back to the promise to Abraham. Uh, Genesis 12, 2 says, I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so you will be a blessing. Um, And that kind of just speaks to us about wanting to be a blessing to those around us. There's all that crazy history, right? And these people are in this in-between awkward stage where they're still kind of under this other empire. It's a little nicer than the last empire, but we're not really our own nation. Um, and Zechariah is reminding the people, guys, God made a promise to you. He's gonna keep his promise. Look forward and hope because remembering history matters so that you can remember, oh yeah, promise to Abraham, it's still a promise. God doesn't break his promises so we can look into the future knowing that. Fantastic. Application time. Okay, there are four big takeaways from this book. Rather than starting with the same letter, I'm just starting with the whole word. Same word for each one of them. And they're all remember. So number one is remember our future hope. Jesus said he's coming back. So we've been talking a lot about these Israelites that lived thousands of years ago and kind of them trying to figure out what's going to go on with Jesus. And so now here we are 2,000 years later and Jesus is like, yeah, I'm going to come back. And we're like, Jesus, it's been 2,000 years. Are you sure? I haven't seen you, you know? Um, But again, God told us he was coming the first time. He gave Zechariah all those super specific prophecies and they all came true about this dude. Jesus shows up. God is trustworthy. He has been working his plan throughout history, remembering history matters. So even today, he's working on his master plan. Remember, even when I don't see it, you're working, right? They thought that the second temple that they were building last week in the book of Haggai, that's not as good as the, as the first temple. It's not that special. And it did end up getting destroyed as well. But when Jesus, the Messiah, showed up on the scene, He wasn't in Solomon's super golden temple. He was in that second temple that they thought wasn't that great. That's the one that Jesus came to, right? So it just kind of speaks to this, things that we don't think are a big deal. Let's be faithful in those little things because they actually are a big deal, right? And we can put our hope in Jesus, not in kings or in countries or in, you know, different people that are overarching, governments, political parties. Don't even put faith in your fellow man. I guarantee, unlike Rick Astley, I am gonna let you down. Put your hope in Jesus. Okay, second, remember. So first is remember our future hope. Second is remember the combined roles. This is a big one. So Zerubbabel and Joshua, who we saw, we have a perfect high priest. Jesus is the perfect high priest, right? Jesus is the true and perfect Zerubbabel. He is king, not just over Jerusalem, but over all the earth. Zechariah 9.10 actually pointed to that when it says his dominion is from sea to sea. Fun fact, that's written on the coat of arms of our country, Canada, from sea to sea. It's coming from here. Good job, Zach. Um... Jesus is king over all the earth, and Jesus is king over you and me. Jesus was also born in exile like Zerubbabel. He was born on earth, away from his home in heaven. Zerubbabel was chosen. Let me quote Haggai from last week. Haggai 2, verse 23 says, When this happens, says the Lord of heaven's armies, again with that, I will honor you, Zerubbabel, my servant. I will make you like a signet ring on my finger, for I have chosen you, says the Lord of heaven's armies. Jesus was also chosen when he was baptized and the voice came out of the cloud. and says, this is my son, my chosen, listen to him, right? Jesus was even descended from Zerubbabel. It's all connected, crazy. So here's the most important point of the combined roles. Jesus is not just your high priest dealing with your sin. He is also your king and he rules over your decisions In the West, we love to announce the grace of Jesus. We are so excited about the fact that Jesus forgives sins, and he does. But we are often so soft on his lordship. He is not just our high priest. He is also our king. We need to honor our king. We need to do what our king says. Remember, he doesn't just want your fasting. He wants your commitment to justice, right? Okay, so that's the combined roles. That's the second one. The third remember is remember the spirit, obviously from the famous verse. Um, we cannot even obey to follow this king unless we are empowered by the Spirit. 2 Thessalonians says God chose you as the firstfruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. Um, remember, this verse in the middle of the lantern vision, this is the word of the Lord, not by might, nor by power, but by my Spirit. Let's put that in our modern context. Not by political power, not by the power brought by wealth, Stop seeking political power for Jesus. Stop seeing riches thinking they will give you power and trust in his spirit. Again, to echo what Vic said last week, seek first his kingdom. All the rest of the stuff will be added unto you, right? In everything we do, let's trust God's spirit to work in us. Okay, so remember our future hope. Remember his combined roles. Remember the spirit. And finally, remembering history matters. That's the catchphrase of the sermon. Literally, the Bible is full of history. And it's important for us to know and study this, not to be history buffs, but to learn its lessons that we are so broken. We are so in need of a Savior, and God is so faithful. He is always working, even when we don't see it. We need saving, and He sent a Savior, and He told us in advance, This is what I'm going to do. This is what I'm going to do. I'm going to save you guys. So the question is kind of, What have you learned from history? What have you learned from this series? I have learned so much from this series it's been super helpful not just for head knowledge but again just seeing the way that god's been just working this whole time it encourages me to be like okay all the small little seemingly meaningless things that i need to do are actually part of god's huge intricate plan and all i need to do is obey this king who has forgiven my sins and to do what he has asked empowered by the spirit well what about your own life story or your own past so if you don't consider yourself a christian think back on your history. Would you consider yourself to be a good person? We know that none of us are really good. You know, deep down, we're all broken in need of a savior. And the great news is that Jesus is that savior. He is a long predicted Messiah. I mean, I just quoted from Zechariah. There's a whole bunch of other books that predicted Jesus as well that came even further into the past. He lived a perfect life, died a sinner's death on our behalf. We no longer have to be slaves to sin. We can be free and live by his spirit. One thing that we can know for sure from not just Zechariah, but the whole series, God is trustworthy. He has been trustworthy. You can trust him today. You can trust him into the future. Also, if you've been suffering with anxiety, with worry, with depression, with apathy, God is trustworthy. He is saying there is hope. Think about the people of Israel and the situation that they were in. It sucked. And Zechariah is showing up. Guys, it's going to be amazing in the future. They're like, Have you looked around, you know? And I just feel like we often get in that place where it's like, man, it just seems like the world's on fire. Everything's broken, you know? And it's like, God is saying, guys, take hope. He has good works prepared in advance for us to do. They may seem small, like serving on kids' ministry, nudge, nudge, but they could also be other things, things that are so important. Remembering history matters because we need to remember that God is trustworthy. Let me just pray. God, we thank you that you are so trustworthy. You are a God that we can trust. We can look back at history. We can look back at this scripture that you have given to us and we can know that you have provided these scriptures for us to be reminded of how faithful you are, that you care so much about us, that you've sent your son to die for the people that rebelled against you. It seems like a ridiculous love, but you love us so much. God, help us to be reminded of that. Won't your spirit just empower us in our day-to-day walk, in our every interaction. High Priest Jesus, won't you just forgive us of all of our missteps and all of our screw-ups. And King Jesus, God, command us, tell us where to go. We wanna follow and go where you want us to go. I just wanna pray this, um, this uh, lyrics from this worship song. Spirit, lead me to where my trust is without borders. God, let me just walk on the waters wherever you would call me, places that are ridiculous, that seem to make no sense. Let me just go where you want me to go. Take me deeper than my feet would ever wander on their own so that my faith would be made stronger in the presence of my Savior. God, won't you just be with us as we go about our week? Empower us, Holy Spirit, to do your work. No matter how small it may seem, we know that you are a trustworthy God, a God that can be trusted. So we look to you for that.